Okay, let's do this. Let's turn to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. I want you to know who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a guy named Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And Paul was a really smart, studied up uh, man. I mean, this guy was intellectually unparalleled, really. And yet... I want you to read something with me or just listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there. 10.10. He writes this about himself. For his letters, that's what he wrote, uh, they say are weighty and powerful. His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. Listen to this. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. And I don't think Paul was acting in false humility here. Most people believe that Paul was unimpressive physically and really sort of a plain speaker. And the more he preached, as you know, by what he talks about in different parts of the book of Corinthians, the more he recognized that he should just keep it simple which probably means he tended to go off on rabbit trails. That's a joke if you come here a lot. Uh, But he had a burning desire, and that's where we are right now. He had a burning desire in the book of Acts to head out to Rome. And uh, you remember that when he was called, and today we're going to see him describe the third time, his calling on the road to Damascus, when he was called, when he was called, the Lord spoke to a person named Ananias who was going to be helpful in praying for and removing the scales or the blindness from Paul's eyes and said, hey, you need to really go pray over him, lay your hands on him because Paul's going to go to the Gentiles. Now, if you don't know what Gentiles are, they're non-Jewish people. Most of the people standing or sitting in here are Gentiles. But Ananias was given this word from the Lord that he was going to go speak to the Gentiles and he was going to speak and be in front of kings and important people. And then Paul gets in his heart that he desires, you can see it in Acts 19.21, that he really desired to head up to Rome. And you can see it in Acts 23 again, when he was scared, the Lord came beside him and said, don't be scared, you're going to go to Rome. That probably, anyway, but that's what the Lord told him. What's interesting about that is, and mark this down for yourself, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're have surrendered your life to Jesus, you're counting on the finished work of Christ at the cross for your salvation and his resurrection, here's what the Lord says to you. Let me read it to you. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, magistrates, magistrates are judges, folks. We just heard a modern-day example last week when Jared shared his testimony of him giving the gospel and forgiving the man who murdered his father in the U.S. District Court during an impact statement in one of the most famous trials in the last 10 years in the United States. And here's this young man who lives in the Mon Valley, grew up in Squirrel Hill, who goes and says, I forgive you and I love you, to the murderer of his father. Here, I bet you Jared 
didn't ever think he was going to be in front of the U.S. District Court. But Luke 12 tells us from Jesus that if you're a follower, you're going to be before magistrates, authorities, and then don't worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. Why? For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you should say. The Holy Spirit will come and give you words to speak. So as we're sitting here and we're studying Paul, who wasn't very impressive physically, but was intellectual, Paul was starting to understand that he needed to concentrate and focus on yielding to the Spirit and to speak of the cross. You didn't have to be clever. Just keep it simple. And Paul finds himself now on the road to the place that God put in his heart, he wanted to go Rome, the most important city in the ancient world. Why would God call Paul to Rome and give him that desire? Because Paul and God, of course God, knew that the gospel was going to spread like wildfire from the place that was orchestrated and set up to do it. The funny part about it is, though, is if you were living at the time and you said, I want to go to Rome, you sort of would scratch your head because they became very anti-Christian. You'd say, well, really, Lord? To Rome? But yes, to Rome. And there are a number of factors why Rome was the perfect place the Lord had set up to spread the gospel. But I want you to know, once again, you're going to find yourself before rulers and magistrates and important places. You know, in Ephesians 3.20, The Bible tells us that God's going to do for his people above anything that you could ever ask or think. And I'm not sure that's talking about, Lord, can I have a $4,000 Armani suit? I think what he's talking about is when you're on mission for the Lord, you're going to find you go places and speak to people you never dreamed you were going to speak to. He's going to call you to something you didn't even know you were prepared for or could do. But you're going to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is an exciting adventure. You never know where the Lord's going to take you. And praise the Lord for that. And so now we find Paul. He's in a place called Caesarea. Do we have that map? Can you? Oh, wow. I didn't even know it was there. Oh, wow. People are putting things up I didn't even know we had. So yes, so Jerusalem's down here. Caesarea is the port town. It's a beach town. The Romans were no dummies. They set up their capital in the area of Israel as they had their thumb over the ancient world and all the different countries and peoples. Well, the uh, Romans set up in Caesarea, which is a beautiful beach town. And now our story has taken us up there. From Jerusalem, Paul has been taken to Caesarea, and now he's before a guy, look in verse 1, Festus. It's been two years since chapter 24. Chapter 24, he was in front of a guy named Felix. Felix was a dastardly Roman governor or procreator, procurator, not procreator, but a procurator. He was a governor. He was a leader. He was a person who uh, uh, led in that area, and now the baton has been passed from a guy named Felix to a guy named Festus, a Roman, not a Jew. I mean, who would ever think 
And Paul now is here. He's a prisoner, but not really a prisoner. And I mean, he's in chains, but he has people can come and go and people, his friends can talk to him. And he's out there over on the beach town. Now watch this. When Festus had come to the province, here he comes. He's inserted as the governor. It's around 58, 59 BC. He'd come. Oh, wow. That's cool. They're recording me. That's pretty interesting. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so when Festus had come to the province, three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him. The, uh, uh, the religious people, the high-ranking religious people of Israel haven't forgotten for two years as the badans being passed from one uh, governor of Rome in the area to another, they remembered the things that Paul had done. And he, what did he do? He'd been going and preaching the gospel. And here's what really upset them that made this stick. He talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection. And that really upset the uh, Israeli or the Jewish authorities. That's why he's here. Well, anyway, the high priest uh, and the uh, chief men of the Jews go up and talk to this guy named Festus. And they ask a favor against him that he would summon Paul to Jerusalem. Now watch. Look what happens to people who get involved in dead, outward religious things. They've been harboring bitterness and resentment. For all this time, and these religious people, the religious people, folks, are going to lay an ambush and set up an ambush along the road to murder him, to kill him. And of course, those people aren't Christians, but folks, any religion that leads to hatred, murder, tearing, listen, listen, I'm saying this on purpose, tearing people down. It's not Christianity. Might be something else, but it's not that. And the Bible warns us in Colossians 3, it says, to us, the people of the Lord, don't even let a root of bitterness take hold. Don't let it a little bit. And James 3, 14 warns us, about envying people and getting bitter. Look what it could do. To these people, these religious folks who were in the temple and knew the law of God, they were ready to set a trap to murder somebody, folks. It's an astounding sentence of the Bible. Oh, may we not be outward religious, but inwardly. Look, when we sang that song this morning, Goodness, just to walk with the Lord and to talk with the Lord and to tarry with him and to hear him in the morning and in the evenings and to speak with him and to have access to the Father. See, that's Christianity. The Bible tells us that God, Psalm 16, is our inheritance. How do you get an inheritance? Somebody dies. And then you receive the blessings. 
Christianity. His son died for us. That's what keeps us from bitterness. It's that relationship with the Lord. It's not outward religious things. It's what happens for us according to the Spirit on the inside. But listen, verse 4, Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he was going there shortly. And therefore he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. Just as an aside, you see all throughout these trials here and the trials of Jesus, but these trials here, you see modern American jurisprudence that's rooted in Roman law. I mean, you can't, accuse somebody and not have the accusers come and be in front of them. That's a fundamental right here, and it it, re- it comes out of a lot of this stuff we're reading now. But, but anyway, and when he had remained among them, verse 6, more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he was sitting on the judgment seat. He told Paul to be brought out, or he commanded that Paul be brought out, and when he had come... The Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they couldn't prove. Underline that. Who else couldn't they prove anything about? Jesus. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. If you're a follower of Christ, you're going to be in trouble. I mean, that's just the way it is. And he said, why would... The student be greater than the master. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there will be trouble. Don't fret about it. You're just like encountering what Jesus said. And Paul here has got these charges against him and that none of them are true. And while he answered for himself, neither against the law of Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. Paul was very uh, astute here. He knew that the Jews were saying he was desecrating the temple. Remember, they said he brought Gentiles into the place of the temple where they shouldn't go. That wasn't true. He took Jews in there. We followed the story. It was a lie. That's not true. So he talks about that. And he wasn't against Caesar at all because nothing, he's not challenging Caesar at all. He's just speaking the gospel. But watch this, verse 9, Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Now Paul's like sort of tired of the political ping pong back and forth, right? And Paul knows, and so I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I don't object to dying. (laughs) I mean, what could man do to you? If the Lord, listen, listen. If the Lord solves the problem of death for you, what in the world could man do to you? Kill you? Now, rarely in the United States is anyone killed for their faith. Of course, other places that happens. But think about it. If it's so wonderful to be present with the Lord, and we know and are looking for the hope of heaven, what in the world could man do? And Paul knows it. And here, by the way, so do you, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life. 
Of course, take care of your body. Do well. Don't put yourself in harm's way. Don't be a needless martyr. I think this chapter even talks about it. But if it happens, you'll be with the Lord. I'll be with the Lord. Praise God. We'll be singing holy, 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 the language of heaven, and be so preoccupied with Jesus, you think you're going to care in heaven whether you died at 78 or 82 or 91 or 14 or whatever. You're not. You're going to be so preoccupied with heaven. Is it sad when people die? Of course. We're human just like everyone. But we'll be in heaven. The hope of heaven. And Paul had had that solved for him. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. And then he does something that only a Roman citizen can do at this time. He's saying... These tribunals, these proceedings are illegal. I appeal, because I'm a Roman citizen, back to Caesar, which is a title for the ruler in Rome, that he hears my case. And when that happens, everything gets, or everything stops. And here's a funny part. Now listen. Festus, just like Pontius Pilate, is in a real tough spot, the governor of Rome, who's in Caesarea. Right, He's a governor from Rome in Caesarea, governor of the area. He's in a tough spot. Why is he in a tough spot? Because his prior, the, the prior uh, governor, Felix, couldn't rule that area well at all. In fact, he got kicked out because he let riots happen in the area. And Rome was unhappy with this area and the governors. And Festus didn't want to get word back to Rome that he couldn't rule well. But he was also knew that the Jewish people were uprising. And so he was like, what should I do here? Should I uh, try him down at Jerusalem? Should I even try him? Should I send him back to Rome? And he and he's worried. And so he, probably rightly so, is in a tough spot here. But in 12, it says, when Festus had conferred with the council, saying, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. He has no idea he's fulfilling what God had already called Paul to do. Paul had had a mind to always go to Rome. And Jesus actually stood by Paul earlier in the book of Acts and said, hey, Paul, don't worry. You're going to go to Rome. Remember? And so the word of God is sure. He's going to go to Rome. He probably just didn't think he was going to go as a prisoner. And that's a lesson for all of us. We go and serve in the way that the Lord wants us to go and serve. When we tell the Lord what we're going to do, we're nothing but a volunteer. And a volunteer isn't a servant. A volunteer says, hey, I can do it this time and only this time. And if you, you know, if I can't do it that time, I can't do it. But the people of the Lord say this, Lord, whenever, whatever, however, and wherever, if I didn't say that. Whatever you want, Lord. So here Paul is going to go to Rome. So after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice come to greet Festus. Now here you go. Knowing Acts means you got to know the players, the people. Who are these people? King Agrippa and Bernice. Well, King Agrippa now is King Agrippa II. We've had all kinds of Herods. These are people who are in the Herodian dynasty. This King Agrippa's 
great-great-grandfather was the Herod that tried to kill the babies in the Christmas story. Okay? And if you remember, in our last um, uh, uh, chapter, Felix, you see, he had uh, a wife named Drusilla. Remember that? So I want you to remember Drusilla is part of the Herodian dynasty and is the sister, listen, just stick with me, of King Agrippa II. Are you catching that? And if you were a part of the Herodian dynasty, you were around and heard lots of the things that Jesus was doing. King Agrippa II was eight years old when Jesus was taken to the cross. And your family was sort of intermingled with lots of the things that happened to Jesus and his followers. In fact, one of the Herods lopped off the head of John the Baptist. Remember that. Another of the Herods killed the Apostle James here in the book of Acts. Now, now watch, just watch. I'm going to tell you one other fact and then I'll move on. Some of you are glazed over. Here's the weird part. Guess who Bernice is the sister of? Drusilla and King Agrippa II. So Bernice lived with King Agrippa II, and some people believe it was platonic, but not many. Most people believe it was romantic. And that's what's going on here. And they know all about the, the way, the, the followers of Christ. They've been hearing all these things. And King Agrippa, who was a expert, watch, he was an expert of the things of the temple. That's why Festus is excited to have him come so he can hear and preside over the hearings so that he can help him out and help Festus get out of a jam. Everybody with me? Watch this. And this is important to the story. So after some days, King Agrippa, Bernice, come to Caesarea and greet Festus. And when they had been there many days, listen, he lays, a, he, he waits a couple days. And, but he says, hey, uh, there was a man here left by Felix about whom the chief priests and the elders of Jews, uh, informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against them. And to them I answered, it's not the custom of Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay the next day, I sat on the judgment seat, commanded the man to be brought out. And when the accusers stood up, look, they brought no accusation against him of things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and be judged there. And when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus Caesar, I commanded to be kept until I could send him to there or to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, well, hey, I'd like to hear the man myself. And Tomorrow, he said, you're going to hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice came or come with great pomp and entered the auditorium. Now, just for you people who've been on the trip with us to Israel, there's a great auditorium in Caesarea, and you go in it, and we actually sat in there and sang. And right there it is, but that's a replica. But we all have on our iPhones pictures of us being in that auditorium. Well, anyway... They're there, and uh, 
They entered the auditorium, look at this, with great, I want you to get this, with great pomp and circumstance, prominent men in the city at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. Now, time out. Everybody, wait. I know, you were up late. But I want you to get the scene here. You ever, you know, watched on TV or whatever, kings entering a court, even think about a Think about the, like the Olympic Games or something where they enter with the banners and the dignitaries and all that. And they come and take their seats. And then I started this off by reading to you some of the things that we know about Paul. He wasn't very impressive physically. In fact, he had probably an eye problem, so he couldn't see real well. And most people believe he was, you know, not physically amazing and he just wasn't anything to look at. And here he comes shuffling in after the whole big scene. And you're like, really? I mean, you, if you were sitting there that day, really? This guy? I mean, what, what, what kind of defense can he bring against all these important people? And he's brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he wasn't fit to live any longer? I mean, people probably were laughing right here. This guy? This is the one that's giving you problems? But when I found out that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that I am, he himself had appealed to Caesar or Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Look, Fe- Festus is concerned about himself because... If he's going to send him to Rome and Caesar, he's got to write up the indictment. You know what an indictment is? It's the list. Oh, yeah, some of you don't don't disclose that too much. No, I'm kidding. An indictment is a list of the charges against somebody. And Festus right now, he's basically saying, I got nothing to write. I don't know what to write. And I don't want to be in trouble with these guys up in Rome. I want help me. What do I write and put in the report? That's what's going on here. And there, he's desperate, and in comes this guy, and you're probably, they're probably all saying, what is going on? Who is this person? Therefore, I brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, that's in, pur- in purpose, I believe. So that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. You're like, you're like, Okay, what's going on here? I mean, think about this. I want you to remember the providence and sovereignty of God. God uses all of our situations and puts us in the places that we're put for things that sometimes you can't understand or see, and yet it's got some unbelievable eternal purpose. And here is this shuffling little dude with bad eyesight. And things that... Anyway, he's just not impressive, and he comes in, and he must be thinking to himself, man, I guess I'm going to Rome, but what's happening? And then Agrippa says to Paul, hey, speak for yourself. So Paul stretches out his hand and, uh, 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 and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I'm going to answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. Now, Agrippa, remember, has his, he and his families have been intertwined with Christians. He knows the story. 
And here comes this unimpressive little guy. And he comes right in. And now watch in chapter 26, you feel, look, here's a trial against Paul. And all of a sudden, if you'll read it and think about it, watch. It's like the gospel through a person who's yielded to the gospel puts people who are unbelievers unbelievers on trial themselves. And he lasers in on King Agrippa. Can you imagine? They could just whack your head off with a sword or whatever, tie you to some horses or whatever, torture you. And he says, I'm glad you're here, King Agrippa. Here he is. Zip ties, a yellow jumpsuit. And he comes in and he says, I'm so happy because today I'm going to answer for myself. You're not going to hear it from anybody else. I'm going to tell you all the things which I'm accused, especially because you're an expert in customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from youth spent from the beginning but among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Now look. Paul grew up in Judaism, and he knew it inside and out, frontwards and backwards. He, all his life, listen to me, all his life wanted to adhere to the law. That was his lifelong pursuit. The law of God, the laws of God, he wanted to do. And they knew me, the Jews, and by the way, so did Agrippa, They knew me from the first that they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Now, folks, Pharisees were very strict and orthodox, and they just lived to conform to the law. And this is what he did. This was his whole life. And now I stand and I'm judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. And what he's saying here is, I know I'm going on, but listen, if you come out of Judaism, you've heard before of a coming Messiah. That's what he's talking about. A promise that was made to our fathers in the Old Testament, a coming to Messiah. Daniel 12, 2, there's going to be resurrection. Uh, Isaiah 53, a suffering servant. Uh, lots of different things in the Old Testament that these Pharisees and Jewish people knew. And he's saying, they know it and you know it, King Agrippa. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain for this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by, by you that God raises the dead? Hold on. I know this is a lot of information. One's a rabbit trail. Here it comes. I don't believe the 10 tribes of Israel are lost because Paul just told us. I think the Lord exactly knows where the 10 tribes of Israel are. You're saying, why does that matter? Because there's a lot of groups that go around and preach that and don't know. But I think the Lord's going to bring back all the tribes of Israel and deal with them at the end. But that's a rabbit trail. But here's another thing I want you to know about what we just read. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Why? Because last week, do you remember? I flashed up there 
about five scriptures from the Old Testament that uh, um, talks about the resurrection of the just. You want to be at that resurrection. And then also several scriptures that talk about the resurrection of the unjust. I want none of you at that resurrection. I want you to surrender your life to Christ and be at the resurrection of the just. I don't want you to be at the resurrection of the unjust because you're going to count on Christ's righteousness at the resurrection of the just. You're going to count on your own righteousness at the resurrection of the unjust. And I got news for you. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need Christ's righteousness. But anyway, he's saying to Agrippa, look, he lasers in. You should know because you've read the scriptures, Agrippa. Why would you be surprised about a resurrection? Indeed, I myself must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did my former life. I did many things contrary to the uh, the uh, name of Jesus. I did uh, uh, did them in Jerusalem. This also uh here's here's what I did. Many of the saints I put in prison having received authority from the higher ups, the chief priests, and then when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I I uh, uh, assented to hits on people, assassinations, killings, murders. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and be exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now watch, some of you in here are going, well, okay, that's all right. I mean, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not, but I've never murdered anybody. But Jesus said you did murder somebody, and so did I, if you've ever hated somebody. Uh, I'm notorious for putting our hands up, but I won't have our hands put up. But I would suggest that if I said, have you ever hated somebody, almost everybody, well, I think everybody in here would put their hand up. You say, well, I'm not a murderer. Jesus says differently. You've hated somebody. You've murdered. Paul here had murdered. Watch this. While this occupy, thus occupied, verse 12, as I journeyed to Damascus. Remember, this is the third time Paul now talks about his conversion. Third time, which means it's important. He goes, uh, with authority and commission from the chief priests, he goes up to Damascus, and right at midday, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me, those who journeyed with me, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, listen, and saying in the Hebrew language, The Lord wanted to make sure Paul knew. Saul, Saul, that was Paul's name previously. Why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Those are those little prick sticks that would get a cattle or a a goat or some sort of livestock to move. And then when you kick back against the goads, oh, or the violin, it really hurts. And uh, here, Paul said, well, I said, who are you, Lord? Now watch. Everybody in the world is going to have to answer that question. Do you know you're going to heaven? If you do, you've answered this question. You've answered the question is who is the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't know if you're going to heaven, you have to answer this question. You will face it now or you'll face it later. And the question is, who is the Lord? Is he the Messiah, the predicted one in the scriptures? Did he come here to earth, die? Did the Lord uh, from heaven, the Father, pour out his wrath against the sin of the world that was placed 
on Jesus at the cross. Is that true? Yes, it is. Did Jesus die the penalty for a breaking of the law? But then did he rise again, defeating and taking this thing out of the curse of the law? And then did he do that? Is it real? Is that who you are, Lord? If you say yes to that, that isn't even enough. You've got to surrender and submit to it. The devils even knew who Jesus was. You have to repent and say, yes, I'm a sinner, and I'm going to turn and walk toward God by the blood of Jesus my whole life. You're going to face that. If you don't face it now, you'll face it later. And I don't want you to face it later. I want you to face it now. But So that was said to Paul. And you can't say, well, I'm a bad person. How could God love me? Who could be worse than Paul? He was a murderer in the name of religion. How sick. And God forgave his sins and sent him out on a mission. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Rise, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you've seen and the things which I will yet reveal. I'll deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Watch this. Here it is. Are you a Christian? This was the mission for Paul, and it's the mission for you. What it was, Paul. Paul was a minister of reconciliation. What are you to do? You're to point people to Jesus so they can be uh, uh, reconciled back to God. It's really simple what your life is. It works out sort of more difficult than that, but this, it's simple. He gives it to you. And here, what does he tell Paul? You're there to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. Why does Jesus say that? Because before you're a Christian, look at this, your eyes are closed to the things of the Spirit. But when you become a Christian, as you become a Christian, your eyes are opened and you now see what you didn't previously see and you go from one kingdom, darkness, to another kingdom, light, from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are being sanctified or sanctified by how? How? Faith in me, Jesus said. Who here? Listen to me. Jesus is our inheritance. An inheritance takes a death in order to receive it. Jesus died and rose again. And generally, just generally speaking, I mean, you don't, you're not happy about the person dying, but the word implies that good things are coming to you because of a death. You understand that? This is good. You get an inheritance. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem. I want you to notice something. As soon as he got saved, as soon as he surrendered his life to Christ, did you notice this? He witnessed right in Damascus. He didn't wait. He told everybody. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, right there in Damascus, he went forth throughout all the regions of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they would repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance or befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me and tried to kill me. And therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. That's important. 
Now, I want to tell you something here as we move here to the end of this chapter. This is unbelievable. I've done a chapter and a half, and it's not even noon. If you people say I'm long and long-winded anymore, I'm pointing to today. (laughs) But I want you to know something, and you do know this. But I know the purpose, if you're surrendered your life to Christ, I know the purpose of your life. I know what we're doing here. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? I know it because I can read and so can you. And it's just really simple what our goal, mission is. But sometimes we lose our way, the church. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Watch, here's our mission. Here it is. And I would ask you, and I'd ask me, have I been on mission? Watch this. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. Of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Watch teaching them to observe all things that I, Jesus, have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said, listen, this is what you're to be about. Making disciples. How do you make disciples? You win disciples to Christ. You build up disciples in Christ. You send disciples out in Christ. It's really sort of simple. It's harder to execute. At least it has proven to some. And what are we doing here in the church? We're equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, Ephesians tells us, for the edifying the body of Christ so that you'd find your ministry and go in ministry or go and minister. Why? So you can be propped up and say, wow, look at uh, her cool ministry. No, so that you would make disciples and that we would just multiply until the Lord comes back. That's the ministry. What else is, uh, as I read, am, uh, do I know that you're to be about? Well, the book of John tells us that you're to bear fruit, a follower of Christ. You're to bear eternal fruit that glorifies the Father. So while you're making disciples, your inner life is being transformed and sanctified and becoming more Christ-like so that more people, is it any coincidence that it's called fruit? No, that many people would come into your life and take a bite and see that the Lord is good, not you, not me. So we're on mission like Paul was on mission and he shows us what? Verse 23 of Acts 26, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. What is our message? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't know what to talk about with somebody you're sharing with? Just go back to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't know what to talk about? Just write this down. Write it down right now. Get your pen out. Get your phone out. No, don't get your phone out. You don't know what to do? Here's a good starting point. Go over to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. I told the narrow way kids this. You want to share the gospel? Do this. For I delivered to you, Paul writes, first of all, that which I also received. What What would I tell people if I was sharing the gospel with somebody? That Christ died for our sins, but not just died for our sins. He died according to the scriptures. 
This was predicted. Prophetic predictions that Christ would rise or live, die, and rise again. And it's in the Old Testament. Before he came, it was predicted. And that he was buried. He really died, in other words. He didn't swoon. He wasn't in a coma of some sort. He died. He took the curse of the law, death, and defeated it. That's important. And that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Watch, watch. And he didn't just rise again. People saw him. The people who didn't deny him, even unto his death, got hit with a fuller's club, bashed their heads in, threw them off places. These martyrs, can you imagine somebody coming with a sledgehammer? Okay, we know you've been lying about this thing you saw or this person you saw, Jesus Christ. I'm giving you about 30 seconds here. If you don't deny it, I'm going to crush your head with a sledgehammer. I mean, who... If it was a lie, wouldn't have stood up and said, oh my gosh, I've been lying. <laughs> you can't do that to me. And none of them did. And they were around. And folks, as we're reading Acts 26, some of these people are still around. As he's given the testimony to these governors up in Caesarea and these Jewish folks some of the people, he, he, he can say, just go talk to them. They saw him. I saw him on the road to Damascus. But anyway, go talk to them. Now, as he thus made his defense, here's the part I'm trying to get us to. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Now, the Roman governor is saying, you've lost it. You're saying that there was a one that was predicted that came out of the heavens, came as a baby, and he, uh, he was born so that he could die for the sins of the world, and he actually rose again and people saw him, and you believe that? Sounds like people today. But he said, watch this, here it comes. The tables are turned. The little weak little guy. When the rubber hits the road, the Holy Spirit comes to him, just as we've read in Luke chapter 12. I'm not mad, most noble Festus. He didn't get mad. He didn't strike back. He didn't post something on Facebook. I speak the words of truth. Listen. And reason, you're going, why are you saying it like that? You know, in the Old Testament, if you're a smart person, you go to, anyway, if you're a smart person, you want to hear this. Well, if you're like me and you're not smart, you want to hear it too. But this is a reasonable faith. There's evidence. There's predictive prophecy. 
There's only one person who could have fulfilled the predictive prophecy because of the lines, the family lines that he came from. It's reasonable. And God in Isaiah 1 chapter 18 says, come, reason with me. He doesn't say it like I'd say it, real cocky. He's saying, come, reason with me. And I don't know if you remember, but you know what he talks about with the rest of that uh, verse? That your sins will be as white as snow. It's about the cross and the resurrection. Come talk to me about it. It's real. It's true. And Paul here to Festus is speaking, but I want you to notice in verse 26, look, look, he's talking to Festus, but watch. He says, hey, Festus, but the king knows. King Agrippa would know. He would know all the prophecies. He would know the Old Testament. He would have grown up studying the law. He would have grown up studying the Old Testament. And he's talking to Festus, but he lasers in on King Agrippa because King Agrippa has the background. And of course, the Lord can save Festus too, but apparently he's directed to the king before whom I also speak freely, knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. What a way of writing it or saying it. He's talking to Festus, but he says, King Agrippa knows. He knows what I'm talking about. Don't you, King Agrippa? Because all of these things that I'm saying, that I'm talking about, were done publicly. Nothing was hidden. Look, folks, what can you say to people who are real smart that say, oh, come on, this is out of this world. This is wacky. You're saying this, believe? Bring them to the evidence. I'm not mad. Don't get upset. King Agrippa knows This is something that's reasonable and truthful, and you can prove it. Come on, folks. Did Jesus walk the earth? I don't care if you're the most hardcore atheist in the world. You can't deny it. Jesus walked the earth. There's more evidence that Jesus walked the earth than all the historical figures combined. There's more manuscripts about this man named Jesus from Nazareth. So, You have to admit, if you're some highfalutin uh, 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 intellectual, he walked the earth. If you deny that, you're just being intellectually dishonest. That's what you're being. So now you got to deal with him. And you have this person who said he was God himself here on earth, and he died and rose again. And every time we get to an archaeological I mean, you can think of all the different reasons. I'm trying to throw them out there here in five minutes. Uh, Every time we get to archaeological things that happen, like, for instance, Pontius Pilate. People didn't believe There were critics that said there was no Pontius Pilate up until the 1850s, 1860s. And then in that city right there, they found an inscription. It's actually there. You can go see it. It's a model, but it's there that is a piece of history that refers to Pontius Pilate. And they go, oh, okay, well, it's true. He did live. And then, so archaeology, prophecy, if you just study the scriptures, they had evidence. Folks, if you go for a car accident down to the court, ready? This one always gets me. 
Let's say you chose to do a jury, a trial to the judge. Forget jury trial. Even if you did jury trial with each other. And you come in there and you bring witness number one. And witness number one tells you what happened. Boom, boom, boom. And then you bring in witness number two and tells you what happens. Boom, boom, boom. You bring witness number three. About witness number four, here's what the judge is going to say. That's enough. We get it. We got things to do here. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, after he rose again, appeared, watch, to over 500 people. At one time. Now, remember, these people are alive when we're in this story. All they have to do is go and get it out of the people that it was a hoax, but they couldn't do it. Anyway, it's reasonable. And Agrippa says to Paul, watch this. Isn't this unbelievable? Read, read what's happening here. He's talking to Festus, but he's, he's talking Festus. He's really talking to Agrippa. And Agrippa gets the sense and knows what he's trying to do. It's no longer a defense of Paul. Paul is now on the offensive to bring these people to him, to Christ. They're on an offensive to share the gospel and bring people. And listen, Agrippa knows it. He goes, he goes, whoa, you're almost persuading me. And, and you know, the implication there is, Listen, I'm living with my sister. I, me, how could I? Is there any hope for me? I've done these things and that thing and this thing. Is there any hope for me? You're almost persuading me. And Paul said, look at this, he just... He takes the cover off. He doesn't hide the ball. Watch. The goal, the whole goal here, through all the two years of being in chains and being up here in Caesarea, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these change. In other words, look, look, I hope you surrender your life to Jesus Christ and become free. And if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you will be free. He didn't hide the ball. The purpose of this is not a defense. Whatever happens to Paul, listen, whatever happens to Paul, he solved the death thing. The Lord has solved it for him. Whatever happens to me, wherever I go, whatever I do, I want to tell people and bring them up and make them disciples through my life by the power of God. You see? And I wonder, I mean, what's my mission? Am I getting off track? Are we getting off track? Who have we shared? Who are we discipling? Think about it. Who's, who are you discipling right now? Disciple someone. Pray about it. Think about it. And then be discipled by somebody. That's what I think the biblical pattern is. Well, one more thing. And Paul said... I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am. And look, when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat beside him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might've been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. He's going to Rome folks. (laughs) Now, one last thing. I might even be done by noon. 
two chapters, one day. How could this be? How could a man stand before kings and queens and people who were completely and utterly immoral and this is embarrassing and get up there and be a prisoner and have been two, you know, in two years, I would have been so bitter. I'd have got up there and said, who are you people to hold me? How? Well, I think the first answer is he was full of the Holy Spirit, and that's the whole purpose of the book of Acts. But I want you to show you one other thing. That they, look back over in verse 18, might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see... I should have put this quote up by C.S. Lewis. If I can find it, I'm going to uh, read it to you. I should have put this quote up so you could read it. If you want this quote, you just let me know. But look at this. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, The Weight of Glory. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about mankind outside of Christ. You ready for it? The sense that in this universe we're treated as strangers, The longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described, watch this, becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. Watch this. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. I'm going to just read that again to you. Welcome into the heart of things. There's something deep inside of us. Oh, the door in which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. He's talking about when you enter a a world with Christ. you You know what he's saying there? There's this deep desire inside, deep. You don't even know it sometimes where you long to be loved and accepted. It's funny. You go and listen to all the secular psychologists and what is like the number one thing on their, uh, you know, things that a human needs, love and acceptance. Oh, really? Hmm, that's interesting. We all have a desire to be acknowledged, heard, thought about, accepted, acknowledged, And this word over here that Paul is telling you about is that word that you're going to receive when you come to Christ for forgiveness of sins and you're going to be accepted. You're going to have inheritance. It's actually a word for throwing lots. And what it means is, it's a weird word. It means that God is going to measure out or bring the lots to a place where you receive what is coming. That's what the word means. And what he's trying to convey here is that you have an inheritance. You have a place. You have a home where you belong. You fit. And you're saying, well, wow. But listen, it's not just forgiveness. If it was just forgiveness, fantastic. But you're adopted into a family. You're heard. You're known. You're accepted. You can walk with him and talk with him.
And when you have that, and you know that, that your inheritance is in Christ, or you have an inheritance, and the inheritance is the person and work of Jesus, listen, other things are settled for you. You have peace and strength, and you're uh, uh, uh Obsession with being liked comes to a screeching halt. Because when you walk in to your place of work or into the soccer field or the PTA room and you share the gospel and people are looking and it's only you, what are you worried about lots of times? Oh, these people aren't going to like me. They're going to think I'm weird. And Paul had settled this because he knew he had a place in the family of God where he was ultimately and forever accepted. I think that's one of the great things that the baptism of the Holy Spirit does. Is it makes it so that you're so grounded. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christ begins to matter more to you than anything or anyone. And then he puts all your relationships together. And and so, what am I saying? <laughs> We're on mission. If the Lord's calling you to it, oh, go out and share the mission this week. And God will take you to places you didn't even think you'd ever could be uh, or or would be or... And when you get to these places and you start to speak, he'll bring to remembrance the things that you need to say and the things you need to speak. Go seek out by prayer and by what the Lord puts in your heart, people who don't know the Lord and invite them out and listen to their story and share the love of Christ with them. I know we love to be together because we're comfortable around one another, but there's a world until Christ comes back that's in dire need of the gospel. And people are dying, literally dying physically, and they're dying spiritually while we have our Instagrams and our Facebooks and our little parties. And while those things can be good and we can do them, we can do all things for the Lord even if we think we're unimpressive or nobodies. Man, when we start thinking that, the Bible tells us when you're weak, Christ gets strong in your life. So let's go share. And let's do it in his power. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much. And uh, we thank you that you would do such an amazing work for us and for all the world. We never tire of honoring you and blessing you. Help us, Lord, to understand what kind of a place we have with you. In Jesus' name, amen.